Hello, and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Peter Beinart, a non-resident fellow at FMEP. Today is March 15th, 2023, and I'm delighted to be here with Maya Berry and Jim Cavallaro. We're going to talk about Jim's uh, uh, nomination uh, by the Biden administration, which was pulled, and about the politics in Washington of supporting Palestinian rights. Uh, we're joined uh, by uh, by Jim uh, Cavallaro, who's a visiting lecturer in law at Yale Law School and the president of the University Network for Human Rights. In June 2013, uh, Jim Cavallaro was elected to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. He served as president of that body from 2016 to 2017. In February, the U.S. State Department nominated Jim to be the U.S. national candidate, serving as an independent expert on the, on the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, and then a few days later withdrew the nomination over Jim's criticism of Israel's policies. Maya Berry is executive director of the Arab American Institute, which is a national civil rights advocacy organization that provides strategic analysis to policymakers and community members to strengthen democracy, protect civil rights and civil liberties, and defend international human rights. Maya has spent many years working on Capitol Hill and has deep expertise in policymaking and democratic party politics. Thank you both for, for being with us. Thank you for having me. Um, Jim, I wanted to start with you. So, so maybe for people who didn't follow the story, which I think is a very important and unfortunately kind of emblematic story of what tends to happen in Washington to people who speak out for Palestinian rights. Can you tell the story of, of your nomination and then what happened to it? Sure. Uh, so again, as you noted, I had already served a four-year term on the Inter-American uh, Commission on Human Rights, and then there was a change of government. And obviously, each administration is going to nominate whoever they choose uh, as, as the best possible candidate. Uh, starting at the end of uh, 2022, there was a process in the State Department within what's called USOIS, which is the part of the State Department that engages with the Organization of American States, which is the parent body, so to speak, of the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. It's a process in state to choose a candidate, interviews, review, et cetera. And, and eventually, State Department came to the conclusion that I would be the best candidate as an independent expert and a U.S. national to serve on the Inter-American Commission. They nominated me on February 10th, which was a Friday. On Monday, I receive an email from a, a journalist at a small a right-wing fringe outlet. And this person has... Uh, combed through my Twitter feed and found several tweets about Israel, apartheid, uh, money and, and politics, APAC, et cetera, and writes to me to ask me, have, do, do you say these things? Do you agree with these tweets? I pinged folks at the State Department just to let them know they had already been notified by the journalist. This is on Monday. And so I, you know, I, I imagine there's some concern because State Department's views on Israel and Palestine are not mine. Uh, but I wasn't terribly concerned until the next morning, I get a, a WhatsApp message, call, it's urgent. I call, I talk to the person that I've been interfacing with at what's called the USOAS. And the person tells me, uh, Jim, the, you know, there's a lot of concern about this. This has moved up the chain. Uh, the US Special Envoy uh, on anti-Semitism is concerned. She was supposed to meet with the Secretary General of the OAS uh, on Tuesday, the 14th, and it's cancel that meeting and the ambassador is going to want to talk to you and, and he's going to he's going to pull with the, the nomination so which, which ambassador is going to talk to you 
the U.S. ambassador to the Organization of American States, okay. who is the person charged with responsibility for the part of the State Department that interfaces with everything that has to do with the Organization of American States. Very okay. important in the Western Hemisphere. But again, unfortunately, not sufficiently uh, important, apparently, within the hierarchy of the State Department to make this call because they made the call. And the call they made was Cavallaro should be the uh, nominee. Hmm. Long story short, I talked to the ambassador. He tells me this is a decision. I gleaned from talking to him that it was probably not his decision. It was made clear to me that this was over my views on Israel and over my critiques of APAC money in U.S. politics. Uh, after this is, is, is announced, there's a, there's a back and forth with Ned Price, a U.S. State Department spokesperson, in which he basically accepts that this is over a difference of views on Israeli governmental practices of apartheid and oppression of Palestinians, that there's a difference in views. And, and again, the, the, the issue here, and we can get into this, is I was never going to represent the United States. The position was to be an independent expert. That's the whole point of the Inter-American Commission, is that it's made up of independent experts who review the human rights practices of countries throughout the hemisphere and do so uh, without allegiance to their government. By the way, interesting on this point, so much so is that the case that nationals of any given state are not allowed, once they're commissioners, to engage in issues on their own state. And that's designed, actually, so that people states don't put their people onto the commission to get friendly decisions. Right. So the idea is that they're going to be independent. So uh, That's the long and the short of it. I, that's great. I want to go to Maya, Maya but just one quick follow-up. Do you have any idea who actually did make this decision inside the Biden administration to, to end your nomination? Tough to say. What I do know is that uh, the U.S. Special Envoy on anti-Semitism apparently was involved. Uh, apparently, she canceled the meeting that was scheduled for February 14th with the Secretary General of the OAS and then rescheduled that. That meeting was apparently held on February 21st. So it went up to that level. I don't know how far up it went, but I was told, oh, this is a, this has concerned by folks at state. This has concerned people in state higher up. Uh, I don't know how high up. I don't know if it went to Blinken. I, I don't have those data points. Wow. Um, uh, uh, Maya, you, I imagine you were not that surprised by this, having watched um, many nominations be uh, of, of people who support human rights uh, be derailed because of the politics of, of Israel-Palestine over, over the years. But I, I'm curious what struck you about this incident in particular? Well, well first of all, um, um, great to be with you, uh, Peter and Jim. Jim, thank you for your work. Um, and I'm sorry that uh, you experienced this. I think advocates for human rights are much, much needed in this world and, and grateful for the work that you do. Peter, you'll be surprised to hear that I am always surprised when these things happen. Um, it's pretty extraordinary um, to hear Jim's story and, and not consider the fact that um, we continue to create this exception for criticism of the state of Israel that's contrary to what our own work ought to be in the space of human rights. So um, I'm, I'm naive enough to continue to find these things as a bit shocking because each time I think we we have this experience, we say, surely this won't play out this way. And I would suggest, I'd go further to suggest that 
for the role that Jim was was tasked to fill, I think it'd be extraordinary to find a human rights advocate who hasn't taken a position on the types of abuses that have been occurring uh, in relation to Palestinian human rights under the occupation of the Israeli government and, and the treatment of Palestinian Arabs within the state of Israel. So if you find someone in that role who hasn't taken a position, then I think you have a problem in the job description of the, of the role. Um, having said that, I, uh, I think we we continue to um, have this problem here where um, uh, folks who are attempting to frame, um, I wouldn't even argue frame the debate, to actually make sure that there is no discussion or debate of, of the current problems with regards to Israel's behavior. Um, and, and they uh, often uh, land in places like this where you go after a specific uh, appointee. Uh, they land in places on college campuses where you target students. Um, you follow students to their employer and make claims that, uh, and say, did you know you handle, you know, you hired an anti-Semite? Um, they play out in, in different ways. Um, and some people are not appointed and some people are actually fired. Uh, but others um, um, do get those appointments and they do continue to serve. So it's a bit of a hit and miss in terms of what's, what's there. The real uh, issue is not that these campaigns continue to happen. The, for me, the real issue is that regrettably, uh, we had decision makers in this administration who allowed a, a you know, a, a worthy nominee. Um, I mean, we're going to lose his skill sets in this space, uh, skill sets that are much needed. Um, and it's the lack of political leadership um, that plays out uh, in official Washington that gets us to this. That's the really, for, for us, uh, that's the real regrettable issue. I mean, Maya, just to stick with you, I'm interested that you said that sometimes people do get the these jobs, because honestly, I have maybe with the exception of Rob Malley, um, I, I have trouble thinking of a single person in the Biden administration foreign policy in any position who has been uh who has who has has been an outspoken supporter of Palestinian rights. Am I maybe I'm being too maybe I'm being maybe the story is not as dark as I want it to believe, but but can you think of anybody? Yeah, so to, to be fair, Peter, I think you're you're right with regards to this administration on this point, right? That those who do have um, a position have have not perhaps led with their their work on on the issue of, of Palestine and have even um, frankly self censored some of their work on that issue in order to not end up being in the headlines on on these. But I'm referring to sort of broadly. If you look at the trajectory, I mean, look, the institution I work for, the Arab American Institute, was founded literally because of the political exclusion of Arab Americans. Um, in because of this issue, because of our advocacy on Palestinian human rights. So from 1985 on, we have to create an entire institution to say Arab Americans have a role at the table. We are allowed to be part of the political process like every other ethnic constituency, and we won't be silenced on this issue. So I think for me, it's the longer trajectory. And I can I can think of examples where they folks have been targeted and instead of ending their political careers, they continue uh, to do important work. But has this administration been a profile in courage on, on, on this issue? No, not. Yeah, I mean, in some ways, I think this administration has been more disgraceful than the Trump administration, because I actually think with the Trump administration, I think there were more people who actually held this position of supporting Israel, no matter what it did as a, as a position of conviction. That's what they actually really believe. Whereas I think in this administration, in some ways, it's worse, because I think you have tons and tons of people who actually probably hold views that are very similar to both yours and Jen's, but basically they've shut their mouths in order to rise up the political food chain. And then they pun it, turn around and then punish other people who are, who are more courageous than them. Um, Jim, I wanted to ask you, um, since you particularly work on Latin America, 
Um, I'm really curious how, what kind of impact this has um, on the way that it, uh, the way that America is perceived uh, on questions of human rights in Latin America. Maybe Americans in the U.S. people are kind of almost used, to, sadly, to this exception for Israel-Palestine. But how does it? How does this? How does this play out in terms of uh, the way it's perceived in Latin America? Well, it, excuse me. It, it, it's a great question. The the reactions that I received, I received reactions immediately uh, because, you know, I've been working in human rights in Latin America and lived in Latin America and speak Spanish and Portuguese. And I've been doing this for, for uh, over three decades. So, you know, my WhatsApp was exploding with messages. What's going on, Jim? It, first, in Latin America, the response was bewilderment. What, what is this? What's going on? I don't understand this. They just nominated you on Friday. What happened? First. Uh, and then second, something between outrage and 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 disbelief. And what was remarkable, and I was just really overwhelmed by this, is that a group of organizations and eventually Human Rights Watch took the lead, circulated a letter calling on uh, the Biden administration and on uh, Se uh, Secretary Blinken to reverse this decision and to reinstate my nomination. And they circulated the letter. And I knew about this. I was sort of following it. People told me about it, but others were doing this. They circulated the letter, and within a little over 24 hours, they got five. They got 500 signatures of leading human rights organizations, professors, uh, activists around the world, but high-profile folks in the field of human rights who were outraged by this. So, in Latin America, the Israel exception does not apply, as it were, to the same extent as it does in the United States. And people are able to look at this rationally, and when they look at this rationally, they say, I don't understand what you, what you said is consistent with what Human Rights Watch has said, and what Amnesty International has said, and what the UN Special Rapporteur has said, and what the Harvard Human Rights Program has said, and what Al-Haq has said, and what B'Tselem has said, and so and what groups have been saying for well over a decade in, in Israel and Palestine, so that in Latin America, there's, there's, there's a combination of, of disbelief and, and outrage. One thing that I'll say, and not to pat myself on the back, I, you know, that's for others to do or not to do. But one of the issues that's, and this is not so necessarily the, 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 the focus of, of your work, which is phenomenal, and I follow it, both of you, thank you. But the, comp the impact that this is going to have in Latin America is not good. It's not, because what, you said something earlier, Peter, the administration would be hard-pressed to find someone who is an independent expert in human rights, who doesn't share the views of the, of the major international human rights organizations and legal analysis on what's happening in Palestine, right? right. I think Maya said this, but I agree with it. Yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. Maya, you said okay. it. I apologize. No, no I problem. Uh, it, and so when I was talking to the ambassador, I, I, I said, look, I raised this exact issue. I said, you're going to have a hard time finding someone who's not going to be uh, held as and viewed as the pro-apartheid candidate, right? Mm -hmm. And the ambassador agreed. And as far as I knew to date, the United States has not nominated mm -hmm. anyone. And the deadline is approaching in a day or two. I don't wow. think they're going to nominate anyone. So in other words, if you look at what's happening here, it's not just about Cavallaro, which it could be about. It's not. It's about, no, the United States is willing not to engage in the main human rights body in the Western Hemisphere in order to maintain its outlier slash aberrant policy on Israel and Palestine. That's truly remarkable in terms of the cost. Yeah, yeah. 
So Maya, it, it seems like every time there's one of these skirmishes, it's it, it, it suggests where the power dynamics lie. And it seems to me uh, somewhat, you know, that despite talk about a, a shift in discourse on Israel-Palestine in recent years, um, the clear polling which shows that, you know, Democrats have moved to a more Palestinian position in public opinion polls, um, uh, a Democratic administration gets a call from, you know, a right-wing outlet, which is still, which is, you know, clearly hostile to their agenda in general, right? And basically responds with terror and throws someone overboard. So um, tell me what this reveals about the kind of balance of forces um, that exist in Washington on this issue. And is there anything that gives you hope that, that, that things are shifting in a positive direction? Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to actually talk a little bit about this, the outlets that we're talking about and using the term journalist, frankly, a little loosely, right, because yeah, yeah. They, there is a, uh, a program in place where these um, these institutions exist to just throw everything that they can see what sticks and then um, um, go after um, folks. Um, and, and it is interesting to your point because why perhaps a Trump administration could have cared more about this, but why a Biden administration would um, is, is not clear at all. And, and I'll remind you this, the same outlet went after Senator Chuck Hagel when he was nominated. Uh, they, they actually showed up here at our offices requesting tape when he spoke before uh, our Gibran Gala. Um, there, I mean, even engagement with Arab Americans is enough reason to raise a flag and say, you know, what, what happened here and how do we how do we turn this into something that it's not? Um, and I do think it, it honestly requires a level of intellectual dishonesty or the suspension of, of critical thinking in order to, to land where these things land. So I, I think the, the, the problem goes to what you were talking about, Peter, earlier, right, which is that these things play out and there is a lack of of, um, I think, political wisdom or courage to understand that you're not this. Nobody is happy with this. Nobody is happy with with, you know, overturning an appointment like like Jim's, because even the headlines that say anti-Semite targeted appointment is gone, whatever, they're not long lasting in this space because they they don't represent what the reality is. And people will continue to talk about how this is an exception and not the, the what's actually playing out. So the politics is this are morally bankrupt. It's clear to everybody that they are. I think the decisions, I mean, look, the, the people that, that Jim talks to or the people that university professors that are being targeted um, across college campuses talk to in terms of their own administration, the conversation is often, look, I don't agree with this, but, and that's not, <laughs> that trajectory never lands you at a place where this will long-term succeed. It simply cannot because it's devoid of, of any acknowledgement of the reality that's in play today. But I mean, I would think one of the key considerations for Biden is, you know, if if they stand behind Jim, will they will they get the Democrats behind them in Congress, right? Um, and the, the answer to that is probably no, or at least not a lot of Democrats won't. I mean, Josh Gotthammer, Bob Menendez, I mean, they're Democrats in Congress who are pretty much every much as slavishly in, in the kind of apex camp as the Republicans. So if you can't hold the Democrats in Congress and then you're gonna get yourself in a political fight, it just seems to me that's isn't that part of the, the root of the problem here? Sure. But those Democrats in Congress are a shrinking and shrinking minority. They're actually not the majority of Democrats in Congress because they don't represent the majority of Democratic voters on this issue. How many organizations can be formed called Progressives for Israel? 
Like that we literally had one created just a couple of days ago. You can do all of that. You could put resources there and try. Andrew Cuomo of all people. Of all people. You can do all <laughs> of that. someone with moral credibility. Uh-huh. <laughs> no, but my point is that can continue to happen and it's still not going to actually change the reality that exists today on this issue, which is that the more education that's taken place, the more intersectional work that's taken place, the the more we've elevated the issue of understanding the plight of Palestinian human rights, you've lost the American people on this issue. So there are a few outlier Democrats who are going to continue to do this. Look, we saw this play out when Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was targeted. I thought the most effective thing that they did in that campaign was to quote other Democrats targeting the Congresswoman. And that is shameful. I mean, it is absolutely shameful that this takes place, but it, it doesn't represent the majority of the Democratic Party anymore. Yeah. If I can I'm jump in on that, yeah. Peterson, or just related to that, I was thinking about this whole, the whole trajectory with this issue. 10 years ago, maybe 10, 11 years ago, in 2012, when I first started at Stanford Law School, I supported an event from the human rights clinic that I ran. I just put the human rights clinic name. They asked me an event for, to support a talk by the UN Special Rapporteur on the uh, Occupied Territory. And I received, I received at that time emails, and I was just starting at Stanford. I had just been lateraled over from Harvard. I received emails at the time from faculty members who I had not met to say, we're outraged that you're supporting this anti-Semite, okay? Uh, which is remarkable. And there was a special announcement that was made at the event and I was visited by the dean in my office. It was a major uh, crisis because we had agreed to put our name on a poster to support the UN Special Rapporteur, uh, uh, Richard Falk, who happens to be Jewish. Not That's not to the point, but that against his, quote unquote, anti-Semitism, right? Because he was had this post and was critical. I, I don't think that that atmosphere a decade ago is the same atmosphere today. I don't think a decade ago, I would have gotten 500 signatures in a day. Admittedly, the internet is more effective, but I don't think there would have been that kind of support. I tend, and maybe because I'm a human rights activist and I'm an optimist to agree with Maya that there's a trajectory here. This is one step backward, right? But I think it's two steps forward. I I don't know how much longer this administration or any administration can be continue to be out of touch with where folks are in academia, young people, you know, across the United States. But, and, but I, I see that you're right, Peter, that Congress is very much in, in a different place. And I would say of all of the things and, the, you know, of the tweets that I had, I think the one that was the most concerning for the administration was the one calling out Hakeem Jeffries, who receives 200 and something thousand dollars per year from APAC. And is, uh, I said, in effect, that he's beholden to APAC and that he does their bidding and that he will not allow any type of conditionality on the $4 billion a year that the United States sends to Israel. Not, don't use this money to incarcerate children in a military prison system or to demolish houses. No, 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 no. Can't even vote on it, right? So that, I think, is where, personally, that's where I think there was more outrage because that's where the... Democratic Party looks and sees what support does it have in Congress or not for this candidate or any other candidate. But again, that's my sense from having spoken to people just about my situation. Obviously, you know the broader politics in much more uh, detail than I do. 
No, no, I think that makes that makes a lot of sense. I mean, that, that, you know, that, that you put you 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 put your finger on a very, very sensitive spot. Right. Which is that um, the 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 new Democratic leader in the House um, is is someone who claims to be progressive on a whole range of issues. And on, on this issue actually has a position which is pretty much indistinguishable from the most right wing Republican. Um, Maya, I wanted to ask you. So I imagine that you are talking all the time with Arab Americans who um, have a desire to serve in, to do public service, to serve in government, um, and say to you things along the lines of, well, I, I guess maybe I better not say anything on the question of Palestinian freedom, because that's my only way of actually, you know, being able to serve in perhaps some completely unrelated, you know, uh, capacity that I feel like I could do some good in that I would like to serve in. What do you say to those people when they, uh, you know, when they cite someone like Jim's experience, or again, as you know better than me, the experience of many, many Arab Americans in particular, how do you tell them to actually speak their mind and their conscience on this issue, given the political price that so many people have paid? Yeah, I mean, that's that's a really good question. Um, I will tell you, it's in some ways not as hard as you think, because the issue of advocating for Palestinian human rights is foundational to Arab Americans. It is it is um, it is consistent with everything that we do in so, so many ways. And I say that um, without regard whether you know we're originally from from Palestine or Egypt or Lebanon or family heritage can be from anywhere. It is foundational because um, most of the people that come to public service, not surprisingly, um, tend to be rooted in some justice issues, right? You, there's no way that you can't care um, about justice here in the U.S. and justice abroad without um, having a position that says um, we we must do better. Because remember, the key to, part of this conversation we haven't touched on is we're not an objective observer to this. We, we have enabled the, the harm that has been done to the Palestinians for generations with our policies. So as Americans, that's part of the burden that we bear when we come to this. Um, and that is we must, if, if this policy is going to change, it's we have to change US policy to, to, to get to a better place. So um, I, I, I think it's a, I encourage them to talk about this, to advocate the way that they want to advocate about this. But I do always, and 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 then, I mean, I'm old in this regard. <laughs> I always exercise caution on uh, social media platforms. I always tell folks, please never assume that anything you're saying to anyone isn't going to become public. And, and just remember civility and common decency in these conversations. And as long as you do that, I don't think, um, you know, I, 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 I would challenge people, and they do, by the way, that I would challenge someone to take a position that's rooted in that and then to say, we're going to come after you. Those things do happen, but I think people are able to most of the time to, to successfully explain and, and defend. Um, the second thing I would say is our generation coming up isn't going to listen to me if I tell them anything otherwise. Absolutely not. This is this is um, again foundational to the work that they do. They see it as no different as having, um, you know, addressed the police brutality here in the U.S. Um, as addressing um, um, what's happening there. So if I said anything else, it wouldn't be authentic, and they wouldn't listen anyway. Um, I can throw in one yeah, sorry please. one data point yeah. that's yeah. near to my heart. Yeah, uh, and she, uh, is that after this all hit the screen, my daughter who's up and coming generation, she's 22 years old, uh, WhatsApp me and said, Daddy, I'm so, I was proud of you when you were nominated to serve on the commission again. I'm so much more proud of you that you, you took a, a principled stance on this. 
Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. One person ahead of an entire generation, but I think there's some, I think that comment resonates with what a lot of 20-somethings feel about these issues. And, and Maya obviously can speak about Arab Americans and how they feel about this issue. I'm just talking about someone, you know, young, recent college grad, where folks are there who uh, see these issues and, and process them. Yes, yes. Um, um, so Maya, do you think that, um, uh, what do you, do you, do you, um, do you talk to, I imagine both of you talk to people in the Biden administration, um, uh, you know, um, and do you get people mm-hmm. telling you that they themselves are frank, are frustrated by the, by the way in which the, their administration is kind of hamstrung on being able to take a more forthright position in terms of Palestinian rights and bring in people who take those positions or, 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 you know, how, how much of a sense do you get is there of a discrepancy between what their public position is and what their private position is? I'm going to answer this honestly and very carefully. Okay. Um, I spend the great majority of my time working on issues that I feel I can be most impactful on. And that means when I'm engaging with the Biden administration, it is not often with folks at the state department on this issue. Hmm. Um, Jim, uh, AI President Jim Zogby does way more of that. Um, but this has not been um, an administration that has shown um, a lot of seriousness on this issue. It's very, very hard. Um, again, we have limited resources, limited capacity. So you want to do the, the things that you can be most impactful on. So I spend a lot of time talking to folks at the civil rights division um, at the Department of Education or engaging with folks at the um, a Justice Department. Um, this is, it's been a, a, just a, I mean, look, if you look at what they put together um, during the campaign, um, the Biden administration, the Biden campaign put together an Arab American platform on the issues that they would work on. If th- there has to be a tremendous amount of cognitive dissidence applied when you read the, what they put on paper to the way that they've governed since then. Uh, and that's, that's a very difficult thing. Um, and I honestly, um, I've actually, I've actually raised this issue with the president directly um, at an event um, unrelated. I thanked him for the work he had done on hate crime issue that was really important. And then I said to him personally, one-on-one, please understand um, that what is happening today in Palestine requires American leadership. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, the response that, that I heard was literally like 20 to 30 years old. There is a, there is a, a disconnect um, in the way that that this administration has been thinking about this issue, um, and I and I'm not even sure that it's a Secretary Blinken problem or or individuals who it's serve. a Joe Biden problem. I do think it's a, it's a presidential problem, and it is um, it's an outdated perspective that has um, not caught up to where the American people are, and where I would argue again the majority of the Democratic. Uh, a party is and the majority of even Democratic members of Congress potentially, though not in the leadership, I understand. Um, so it is, it's, you know, that's my yeah. honesty. I mean, Jim, look, I, I hate to play the pessimist in this conversation, but honestly, like, if I looked at, I mean, she wasn't in the in Senate in the Senate for very long, but if I look at Kamala Harris's, you know, p- you know, position on this, I don't see much, I don't see she was frankly any better than Joe Biden. She seemed to me to be someone who basically had spent her years in the Senate trying to figure out what was the position she could take that would get her into the least amount of trouble with APAC. And I haven't seen any sense of, of any of political courage or conviction. So I don't necessarily think that there's anything, I mean, I'm not saying you guys are saying this, but there, there's no, we, as we see with Hakeem Jeffries, 
or we see with Josh Gottheimer, or we see with some of the Democrats that a that that APAC and DMFI helped elect in the last. There's no reason you can't be in your 30s or 40s as opposed to your 70s and still basically take these same, same views. So I'm curious to hear more about how you think this shift that is taking place, uh, uh, you know, at the grassroots among people like like your daughter actually translates into into politics because we know that there are issues like gun control, other issues where people in Washington can be out of step with the American people over long periods of time. Right. But again, Peter, that you, you put your finger on the precise issue. The change on this issue, if it is going to occur, and I am hopeful that it will, in part because I am an optimist, but if it is going to occur, it is going to occur because there will be an important change in our politics. If you look at the studies, and again, I'm an academic, so I look at uh, these sorts of studies, what you see is a tremendous disconnect between the preferences of folks on whatever she want to talk about, Medicare for all, uh, gun restrictions, uh, railroad regulation, uh, you know, you pick the issue you want to you want to pick, Israel and, and Palestine. You see a disconnect between what most voters think, and particularly younger voters, and what happens in government, in Congress, right? And that's largely a function, which is why I said I think I hit a raw nerve when I talked about Hakeem Jeffries. It's largely a function of the role of money in politics. It, not exclusively, but largely a function of money and dark money in politics. That APAC can, can fund dozens and dozens and scores of campaigns and decide that Andy Levin is too progressive. He has, he has to lose. They can do this. And they do it in a way that does not square with what constituents and voters want, right? So if there is going to be a change on this issue, it's going to be the same change we have on a living wage, you know, not $7.25 an hour, on Medicare for all, on restrictions on, on guns, on free university education, on a series of issues where Americans hold generally progressively and Congress is entirely out of step. That's the change that has to happen. And it's a profound change, but I don't see this issue as terribly different from, look at Medicare for all. What are, what are the support levels for Medicare for all? And you can't get a vote in Congress. So the fact that Congress is out of step and does not respond, that's the issue. And this is one more issue in that, in that broader fight. And that's what I think progressives see. And that's what young people see, which is why Maya said, I can't talk people out of it, right? Young people. They see that this, no, this is a matter, this is, there's a right and a wrong here. There's a right and a wrong on Medicare for all. There's a right and a wrong on, on forgiving student debt and not throwing billions of dollars at SVB Bank or throwing billions of dollars at SVB Bank, but at least being consistent about, about who gets bailed out. There's an issue of like what's right and what's wrong. That's why, that's why I'm hopeful. I think this generation sees that better than my generation. My generation is a lot of people that actually think that blind support for Israel is righteous. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's the view of, of young people. And the question is, how do we fix that disconnect between what people want and what Congress and the executive branch and the Supreme Court do? That's, that's a democratic question that's, are we gonna have a democracy? Do we have a democracy? Uh, those are the real questions. And this is, just, this is one more issue in that, broader, in that broader debate, or at least that's the way I see it. And I think, I think that it is politically misguided, increasingly politically misguided to land where some of um, these folks are landing, which is why you see the efforts that you see, right? I mean, we joked about yet another committee that's being created. We've got the, the, the stuff that has to continue to happen in Congress. We have the lawsuits that continue to play out. We have the misuse of, of Title VI on college campuses. We have the, you know, when, when ADL in May of last year announced that anti-Zionism equals anti-Semitism, 
um, it, beyond the IRA definition and the conflation of criticism of the state of Israel with the very real problem of anti-Semitism that's growing in this country. We, we spend a lot of time, my organization, on the issue of hate crime data. We see an increase in real anti-Semitism in this country, and the need to respond to that is critical critical. But when you have an organization that, say, maybe is prioritizing the pro-Israel work over the work, the important work that needs to happen, I mean, I, I, I trust you all have seen there was an article last week that even the staff at that institution. In, in Jewish currents, I should, I should acknowledge. <laughs> yes, even the staff came out and was like, there are some serious questions here about how this actually plays out. So the I think it's not politically viable to maintain this uh, forever. That that would be my, my at least that's what I tell myself to continue doing the work we do. Um, but I, I do think that's true. Yeah. My, I wanted to ask you, you know, I imagine one of the cha political challenges you face vis-a-vis -vis the Biden administration is that given that the Republican Party and almost any Republican presidential candidate would be so hostile um, to the concerns of Arab Americans on, on a whole range of issues, that it's hard to have that much leverage over the Biden administration, right? Because it's not as if you have an alternative where you can say, we're going to support the other person instead. So in a, in a situation where, I mean, there was a time, as you know better than me, back in 2000, where George W. Bush is actually courting Arab and Muslim Americans. We're very far away from that. So under those conditions where, you know, it's it, how do you exercise leverage on Democrats when you don't have an alternative party that you can threaten to support. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit like Jim's point about the role of money in politics, right? The, the two-party system is structured in such a way, and Arab American voters, when we've done our polling on this, they tend to be about a third Democrats, a third Republican, and consistently a third independent. So they really are an excellent constituency for folks to court in terms of, of their vote on this. Um, uh, and you're right, Peter, in that uh, we have never been as a community a single issue constituency. Um, we we have not voted on this issue um, ever <laughs> because, uh, frankly, our political system hasn't given us um, a, a particularly viable candidate on this issue for a very, very long time. Look, the difference it was I would point to what what happened in um, on 2016 with the candidacy of, of Senator Bernie Sanders and that historic speech that he gave uh, in, in New York. Um, and instead of a political pushback and outrage, there was this overwhelming sense of like, I can get behind someone who's speaking honestly about this issue and other issues, right? To, to Jim's point, he's being consistent. Um, so it is challenging um, when we go into every presidential race, um, because we regrettably not have, uh, as I said, profiles and courage on this. Um, but it is our job and we, we do it and we take it very, very seriously to remind them um, that the politics of this is what they're leading with, as opposed to what is, and I would argue the flawed politics is what they're leading with, as opposed to what is in the best interest of, of the United States? What is in the best interest of advocating for human rights? And what is in the best interest of actually national security of the United States? Like there are serious reasons separate from, can we please get this right? <laughs> because it's the right thing to do. There are very real reasons why our policy has played out and has been a failure on the world stage. So am I hopeful that the next Democratic nominee, whoever it may be, is going to have a different position. Um, no, not I'm not right now. Um, but do I know that our constituency is going to continue to engage in the process and push for more and demand more, but ultimately vote what they think is in the best interest of their local communities and our and our country? Yeah. So it's a it's a challenge. Look, I've been 
I mean, we're all been thinking a lot about President Carter recently for, for very good reasons. Um, remember the before the book on apartheid that that the world lost its mind over. President Carter was the first to talk about a Palestinian homeland in the 1970s. They then lost their mind over that, right? And and what's happened with this trajectory? We are all evaluating his leadership in that space and saying, boy, was he right? Um, so I wish it didn't take as long as it takes. I would like there to be an immediate. Um, change in our policy because the conditions on the ground for Palestinians, I mean, we didn't talk about this because that's not our topic, but we, we all know how devastating they are right now and they're declining. So I wish that were not the case in terms of how long it takes, but I, I know that no matter what structures are put in place to try to push this back, I don't think it's going to work. Jim, I wanted to just give you the, the last word I wanted to ask you was about the way this issue plays itself out in, in Latin America. And, and I'm curious the degree to which, I mean, there, there are forces in, in Latin America, we saw it with Bolsonaro, um, uh, that, that, that actually sound very, very similar to kind of right-wing pro-Israel voices in the United States. And I'm, uh, since you are someone who works on Latin America, but also cares deeply about this issue, I was just, I just thought I'd take the opportunity to ask you, and yet there's also been more progressive leaders in Latin America that have been recently elected. I'm curious where you think the, the kind of balance of, of, for, of power is on this issue in, in I mean, obviously it's a, it's a very wide con region to to generalize about, but what you think are the, are the currents that are taking place in, in Latin America itself on the debate about, about Palestinian rights? Well, first let me say, I would have ended with what Maya said, which was so eloquent and which I, I wholeheartedly agree with in terms of the vision for the future. But since you asked about Latin America, I think we're seeing an interesting change in the Western hemisphere. <clears throat> you have, uh, you know, Bolsonaro got voted out. Lula's back in power and Lula's a, an important regional leader. Lula does not share Bolsonaro's view on mm -hmm. Israel and Palestine. Uh, and the same is true of other governments in the Western in the Western Hemisphere, in Chile, in Colombia, in Honduras, uh, in, in Mexico to some extent. You have leaders who are not the right-wing authoritarians who are close to Trump. I don't think this has been a major issue in Latin American politics. It hasn't been as important as it should be. I think this may be a time when folks who are concerned about justice for Palestinians look to other regions of the world to try and uh, create con constituencies in international uh, bodies that force the United States hand uh, further, right? But one thing I'll just say in terms of the politics of Latin America, which is unfortunate, is that one of the lessons that states in the Western Hemisphere have seen for my being withdrawn as a candidate is, oh, okay, so we can nominate people who are on our team to the as independent experts. We can have litmus tests. Mm. We can politicize, in the worst sense, the nomination process to this independent body, right? That, that's one of the consequences for Latin America. The consequences for Israel and Palestine, I think, are that there's an increased recognition, but this, I think we just have to do more work to get Latin American states to buck the position of the United States and to take a righteous position in defense of, of justice for Palestinians. Um, well, Maya's would have been a great place to end, but this was also I think, <laughs> a good place to end. Um, uh, uh, thank you so much, Maya and Jim, for sharing your time and your insights. Uh, and thank you to our listeners for tuning into this episode of Occupied Thoughts. Please make sure to check out the FMEP website fmap.org for resources related to this podcast and lots of other rich content related to Palestine and Israel. And please make sure you are subscribed to this podcast to stay up to date. 
You can find us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify, and you can also watch video versions of our podcasts, including this one on YouTube. And with that, I'm Peter Beinart signing off until the next episode of FMVP's Occupied Thoughts.